In April 2020, just as the global pandemic was kicking off, Lawrence and I started recording our weekly Friday Firesides. These are conversations broadcast live over the Crowdcast platform and joined by people all over the world who listen in and share their thoughts with us via the chat. We started these live recordings as an opportunity to keep in touch with our members, as well as process what it meant to run a business during a pandemic. Since then, we've broadcast nearly every single Friday and built up a library of over 100 episodes. We cover a range of different topics from money to meaning, pricing to purpose, vision to vulnerability, entrepreneurship to empathy, and product design to life design. This is our perspective of what it means to do business from the inside out, as well as the outside in. If you're a business hippie just like us, then you'll definitely find something of value here. We hope that these conversations inspire and motivate you to do work and build businesses that create meaningful change without burning out. Because like us, you're just wanting to make money, do good and be happy. So when I was five, I've got two older brothers who are like four and five years older than me. And anyone who has older brothers will understand what it's like to grow up with really annoying people who think they're really funny and like to tease you a lot. So anyway, I was watching this natural history program with both of them. And it must have been uh, David Attenborough because he was still doing that then. He was like, so lions, unlike human beings, yeah, da, 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 da. So I was curious, I didn't know what I was talking about because I didn't know what a human being was. So I said to my brothers, you know, what's a human being? And they, of course, thought this was hilarious and like completely, oh, you don't know what a human being is. And they were like, we're all human beings. I'm a human being. Your brother's a human being. You're a human being. And I burst into tears. I was a very emotional child. So my mum was like, what have you done to her? What's wrong? And I was like, they said I'm a human being, but I'm not a human being. I'm a gayling. Um, <laughs> so I always kind of think when someone said well what, what do you I'm like I'm a gayling I don't know I just do just do me sort of thing so which kind of is a bit like I think at five I probably got something then which was I was just very interested in exploring who I who I was and who I am and the idea that I was like anybody else was like a crazy sounding it was like a sort of a very specific unique individual so that has led me down some really interesting paths it's always led me to art and culture and I think because mm. art and culture helps me explore that question and alongside looking at my peers my human peers I guess so I've worked as a curator and a programmer which means in different ways I've select um I've programmed artistic spaces so lots of arts venues, multi-art venues, working from performance through to for many years in film. I was very interested in the intersection between where art meets the audience. What's that moment of feeling? I was less interested in how it's made and more interested in how it's received and what it does to us when we receive it. So I spent many years doing that. I've also been a broadcaster, cultural broadcaster, and still do a fair bit of that. So um, reviewing, uh, reflecting on work, and I make work myself as an artist. And that has been from uh, writing. So I do quite a lot of fiction writing, but also through sort of performances, performance-based stuff. And then about 15 years ago, I retrained as a coach because what I realized was this idea of stories and storytelling. Again, going back to the self, I was much more interested in the stories that we tell about ourselves and giving space to that. Uh, and then that led down another path. So I sort of was one of the founding um, facilitators for the School of Life, and I was there for 10 years. And again, always very interested in these, um, for what democratised spaces. Like, how do you just share this information in a really interesting way? How do you engage in these conversations and make them as accessible as possible? I grew up on a council estate in a city called Leicester, which is a very industrial city, Nobody, everyone was expected to go and work in factories. Somehow I took this weird path, but it always means that I'm always thinking about the people that I grew up with. Like how, how does they, you know, what are they feeling? How, what their, what's their perspective of this? So I'm always trying to think about how to bring this into interesting spaces. So now where I am, 
um, two years ago during lockdown, I set up a company called The Space to Come, not knowing what it was going to be, but knowing that these two things that I felt had transformative potential, the coaching and the facilitation and the curation and the kind of artistic journeying that you can take, what would it be like to bring both of those two things together? So a pretty boring life then. Mm. Mm, pretty standard. <laughs> standard gaily in fair. I don't know, it might be. I don't know. I just know what I'm doing. I, I'm going to. So there's a lot of threads that we can pull on here. One that that sprang to mind because you say you know you you have your own creative practice. You like to do your own art. Um, we are. I would say we've evolved. Well, personally, my understanding of the work that we do at the Happy Startup School has evolved from purely kind of like following a methodological approach to building a business in a uh, an environment of extreme uncertainty and trying to test and experiment in order to move forward to also what is it that you want to create and where does that inspiration come from and so i'd be curious to hear given your creative proclivities or you know energies what what is your inspiration how do you what inspires you to create I think it's changed throughout my life, for sure. And I think that now, the reason why I came up with this name, The Space to Come, because 2016 was quite, for me, a seismic year. And effectively, because it was the moment where the bubble that I've lived in, that I just assumed was enjoyed by lots of people, I realised wasn't. And part of that was the Brexit um, referendum, which was genuinely a moment of of waking up and realising that actually the way that I saw the world wasn't at all the majority. And so it was really good in a sense of going, okay, what's actually going on? And then it got me to start thinking a little bit about the world in which I wanted to exist in, the world that was the world I wanted to exist in. And it felt like there was a a choice, either that I, which I was, I was part of, I call the old world, right? I was part, I was working at the British Film Institute then. I was, you know, I was part of in these old institutions that had been there for years and trying to kind of reform and shift and change them. And I just was, I quit everything a few years after that and said, no, I actually just want to create from ground zero what kind of environment might create a wholly different experience and a wholly different relational society, you know, big, big questions. And that led me to, I've always had a love of science fiction, but I've gotten deeper into that. I've gotten deeper into speculative fiction. I've got deeper into imagining what worlds could look like, you know? So I think a lot of my, ideas are centering around that it's where my inspiration is coming from but that's also the kind of art that I'm making is around that question exploring that question so and I as a suggestion that the one that at the moment is in talk about emerging is forcing itself into existence is a character that I've been obsessed with for years. It's a legend, it's a fable. We don't know if she really existed. I think she did, but called Black Mary, who ran a healing well in 17th century London. The part of London that she she ran that healing well was natural spa. So Clerkenwell, Sadler's Wells, all of those wells were healing wells. They had this rich healing water and people would come out and they would take the waters and they would go back home. And somehow in the middle of all of it is a black woman, no one knows, Mary Wollaston. She's running this as a business. And it's also a space where the kind of the outsiders lived. It was that the radicals lived there, the outsiders lived there. So I've been obsessed by this character. And so she's emerging swiftly this year. Um, and we're basically doing a kind of major project around her next year where we're going to recreate a 21st century healing centre for London using, based on the same land that she once lived. So this idea of this character that is in the 17th century, but she's somehow still in the 21st century and she might be beyond them, what would she look like now is what's driving the heart of that project. 
And we're working with a fantastic community gardens called Calthorpe that in and of itself is a healing centre. Um, looking after Afghani recently arrived refugees, isolated Bangladeshi women, elder Latin American community, and they all use this garden for their own for their own healing and nurturing. And we're working with them to reimagine this space. Stuff like that, wow. really. Amazing. So no wonder you find it hard to say. What do you do when someone off? <laughs> exactly, Lawrence. Exactly. It's like I'm a gaily. I don't know. It's these things. So yeah, part of it is a lot of the things that we do haven't been done in the way that we're doing them before. So it's quite hard to say it's like this or it's like that. It's like actually, mm. we're the aim is to try something new, which is hard. You mentioned before your interest of where art meets the audience, and. I'm relating it to what you just said. Is this like where the creativity inspires or is it part of the impact or creates the impact? Mm. And so it sounds, there's this story that uh, of this character that feels, sounds inspirational, connected to healing. There's a whole creative piece around this quite inspirational, but then also you were grounding it, it sounds like, in something practical that can be done now that's right that's right and that that sounds like what it means to be gaylene yes and i wish you would write that down and put it on my website because it's very hard <laughs> to capture the process right because it is a process i think it's very much about the outcome who knows what the black mary uh, the libation festival the black mary festival will look like we're going to do a permanent healing garden and a memorial what would that look like we don't know but the process to getting there is is the thing that we're really fascinated by because the process allows people to engage with themselves in a new way that's that's the thing that we're really wanting to do like how can we create spaces that people can engage have spaces of reflection and connect to themselves in a new way and therefore create something new we don't even care what about what it is but something new is going to be created so we do a lot and there's just myself and there's the amazing Zainab who is alongside working with me she's also training to be a psychotherapist and a lot of our interest in these intimate spaces of conversation healing inform how we structure these experiences i was curious about you were talking about not knowing where it's going to lead this is how it came across not knowing where some of this stuff leads but uh following this creative process um on one hand it it fills me with anxiety because like <gasps> what what's going to happen what's going to do so like a lot of uncertainty but married to that is a lot of possibility mm-hmm. and again relating to the kind of journeys that we are taking people on in our communities and our programs and our events this trusting the creative approach mm. where you don't necessarily know the answer from the beginning but it yeah. emerges through interaction and through action. Mm. I was wondering how you could relate that to, yeah, the work and maybe talking a bit more about some of the projects that you've had, uh, you've done um, to Mm. hopefully inspire or just uh, give some thoughts and ideas to people listening. It's, um, yeah, when I said it's hard, it's kind of what I'm referring to, I guess. I think it's, it's important to position the space to come as an artist-led company that helps because the things about artists that interest me particularly it's not necessarily always what they produce but it's the how that they go about the process of exploring something so often artists are led by process so they have to keep doing something and out of once they keep doing it something will emerge you know Something will shape and emerge. And I want something, they step back from it, they look at them like, it's interesting. I wonder if, okay, let's try, go it this way, tweak it this way. Um, and there's a refining, it's a constant process of refining, right? Now in business, that's really hard because when I left the BFI, I was, you know, I had a big job. I was running the BFI South Bank. It was one of those jobs that people never leave. Um, I did, uh, and people were like, so what are you going to do? And I was like, I have no idea how to answer that question. And even now, I, I don't, it's hard to answer that question because 
it will emerge out of the process. Like right now we're doing this. And then whatever emerges, we have a sort of idea of certain things that we'd like, for example, from the Black Mary Project, but we don't actually know what will happen. Um, so it feels that the things that maybe I could learn from the artistic process is, is iteration and reflection, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and this is why I'm so happy to meet you guys and your community. Cause I don't know how to do this in business. I'm, I'm struggling with how do you build a business plan when you're like, I'm going to do something for like three months and then I'm going to see what it's like. And I'm going to do something for three months again. And see what well, it's I was like. hoping you're going to tell us. Oh man. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I really am not the expert on this. Um, so, okay. How do you feel? It's a really, really good example of this. When I left the BFI, because I, I did cultural broadcasting, and this is this is exactly it gives you an insight into my life. A, a, a production company, um, reduced listening, who I've worked with before, were like, "Look, we're pitching something into the BBC to do a half-hour arts program. Have you got any ideas?" I was like, "Yeah, literally." Off the top of my head, I was like, "Yeah, sort of." I've been thinking about how, after being in culture for so many years, I don't get the same feeling as I once did when I'm amongst work. I don't know what's happening. I'd quite like to explore that. They're like, okay, we'll put that in. So they put it in and it comes back and they go, oh, they really like it. Can you work it up? And I'm like, okay, damn, I have to think about it a bit more now. So then think about it a bit more. Then that like one line becomes a paragraph. And then they put the paragraph in and they're like, okay, we've got the commission. So now we're like, okay, now we really have to go deep and think about what that quest, how I want to explore that question. So it ended up being me going on this journey, starting with my mom in the, my mom's living room and talking about what it was like to be eight and watch films and listen to music and how it felt, how exciting it felt. And then cut to, you know, 40 years later and you're like, um, what's happened in between? And then it led us to a neuroscientist who spoke about uh, interoception and what happens when actually is going on in your body and your brain, when you're experiencing something to an artist, Mark Leckie, who spoke about magic, art and magic, uh, to curator Zoe Whitley, to a historian and then it led me to just post the pandemic standing in the tape in front of an artwork and getting chills you know so that was the piece the and it's still on bbc sounds it's called transcendence how can i feel art again after doing that i was like oh i'd love to do this as a human test i'd love to do some human experiments where i bring people together to test this you know so then <laughs> The Arnolfini in, um, Gallery in Bristol got in touch and were like, we listened to your documentary. Do you want to come and do something with us to test this? I was like, I was just thinking that. So then we go and we do these amazing series of tests that become something called How Do You Feel? Where we essentially create these like mindful viewing experiences where we slow down the act of viewing a piece of work. And then through a series of prompts, we get people to test how their body's reacting in the moment, what memories are being triggered, where their imagination is going. Um, and it's sort of based on a phenomenology that I found going through. So, so and now this is a program we offer. So now we've done this um, in Glasgow, the tramway. We've just done How Do You Feel Cinema at the British Film Institute. Um, we're doing something with the Royal Academy coming up next year. But I didn't know that when I did that, when the guy was like, come up with an idea, do you know what I mean? So I think that's, this is a really good example of how I would love for the rest of my life to work. For about three or four years, when we started, Carlos was like, where's the plan? We need a plan. We need a business plan. What's going on? <laughs> I need to know what's going on. Where are we going? And I didn't have one. I don't think we could have even created one. And even if we did, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been the right plan. Um, so yeah, I definitely resonate with your story of well two words that i heard recently from our friend lana actually funnily enough there's a book called emergent strategy yes, which gave, gave meaning yeah. to our approach and suddenly it was a thing rather than just winging it <laughs> so uh, it gave me reassurance that actually there is value in serendipity ultimately i think from what you're talking about it feels like you would never if you didn't have these inquiries maybe a little bit of passion bit of luck a bit of happenstance whatever it is that leads you to the people and the projects that you have mm. um i don't know how you could ever orchestrate that from the start without mm. having those interactions so 
I think you can probably plan maybe a few months ahead, but anything beyond that is really fiction, I think. It's um, fiction. That's yeah. right. And I've yet to meet a business person who had a plan A that worked. That's so true. It can help with investors and banks and funding Yeah. Uh, to reassure people that you're on the right path. But for something as ethereal as this, I think it's impossible almost to, to plan ahead, especially when the world's changing as well. So, Lawrence, you're just saying that. It's just made me think about, you know, when you said with banking and, and, and that's often what it is, isn't it? It's like investment. We want to reassure people. But actually, you know, given the last few days, given what we went through in 2008 with the financial crisis, it doesn't work there either. No. To me, it's it's like, an illusion. I think it's, it's an, an illusion, illusion of certainty. Yeah, Someone totally. um, on a retreat the other week uh, talked about the consultants that come in. And he called them the certainty merchants, which I've not heard before, <laughs> which I love. It's like you can pay for certainty and it probably costs a lot of money. And these people will guarantee, well, I'll try to guarantee some outcome for you, but it might not be the right outcome. Um, yeah, and that's good. the thing is when you have a plan, I think sometimes you can follow the plan at the detriment of everything else. Maybe your well-being, maybe the vision or maybe just your interest in it. And for me, yeah, whenever we tried to plan, things haven't gone to plan and that de-energizes me my senses maybe with you maybe you would feel restricted yeah. by a plan i don't know yeah i think i would and also the thing that you mentioned which i'm i i really like and i'm really interested in is about what you said about that connection and engagement because i think there's something about luck which i've never been a i don't know how i feel about the concept of luck apart from the fact that from when you're born as in I have to be careful I said it to sound like a fascist, but I think I'm very lucky that I was born when I was in England in the way that I was. Like I had access to opportunities that other people in other parts of the world at that time didn't. I also feel there's something about, which is I think what artists do, you, you, you put things out of yourself, you offer things, and then you see, and then we see who connects. So there's something about when Arnolfini came, it's because I'd offered something. Do you know what I mean? The documentary was an, was a, was an offering, which is like, I'm feeling like this, are you feeling like this? And then I'm always curious about, that's the bit I'm most interested in, like who does this connect with? It's not going to connect with everybody, but if it connects with you, then come, let's talk, we can do something. So it might just be two of us in the whole world who in, are interested, but that moment of connection is what, I'm seeking, I guess. Well, yeah. you're in the right place for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one of the, I think, the drivers of our work is that sense of connection, friendship, community, shared reality. I like how you put that idea of, you know, you just offer something up to the world and then see who bites, who it resonates with. And that's a vulnerable act. That's a risky act, particularly from my perspective, if it's something that's born of something you really care about and love and then it's your baby, for want of a better term. Uh, and then doing that within a world and a system that has a different set of stories about what it means to be productive and to create value. And like Lawrence was saying, the need for certainty. I was curious about what Neil said in his yeah. comment previously a lot of business people are focused on outcomes uh, and it is a good way to sell programs and events you know to define the outcome it's harder it's a harder sell using a holistic approach with potentially no answers at the end but could very well be much more valuable yeah. and i think that's where my understanding of lawrence's thing about the plan yeah. is I think you know planning is useful as long as it isn't become doesn't become the the, the cage within which you're constrained. Mm. Uh, it, plans provide a bit of direction and guidance and guidelines, but um, to follow something blindly or to expect an outcome a hundred percent, yeah, can be challenging if if it doesn't come about. And you know, I think what I'm hearing from both of you is that that whole process, that journey, could lead you to somewhere much more valuable than what you thought at the beginning. Yeah, that's right. When you were telling the story about you as a child, five-year-old, there's there's a, like a, almost an inner belief or faith or confidence, we'll call it what you will, but that I'm different and I don't know, you must have some still to have faith in that emergent path mm -hmm. because I think that's what 
my understanding is when people feel like they need a plan, it's because they're not sure that this is the right, the uncertain path isn't the right path. So let's go down the one that gives them more certainty. Right, right. Rather than just feeling there's something here. I just feel there's something here. Something's right. Yes. And the feeling, I think, is the is the key word in that sentence, um, for sure. And, and I think it's the thing that I'm most interested in. I'm most interested in how do you stay connected to your feelings in any given moment, and and your dis your your decisions come out of that space. Do you know what I mean? And it's interesting. I'm smiling at Nat Nicola saying, as a traditional non-planner, I'm loving this conversation. Nicola, listen, let me just tell you, you've got, you know, and I was having this funny conversation with Carlos before, which is I, I have two sides. I've many sides, but there's two clear sides. And I had this fantastic, as ever, of a brilliant therapist. And she helped me reach this place of integration between the two sides. And I have a very directive side. I have a very efficient producer, you know, who knows... I'm a Virgo, like I like a spreadsheet. I like a timeline. I like this, right? Carlos, you're feeling me, right? So I, I can keep, I'm, I can be obsessed about keeping things on the track. But then I have this very, you know, emergent, timorous, vulnerable side that is interested in really staying close to an idea or a feeling. And my whole life, literally until last Monday, these two sides of thought. Thought so much that I would even change careers. So I'd have a long time, you know, I'd go to a structured job and I'd go, no, this is who I am, I'm structured. And then I would leave after two years because my artist is like, no, I need to breathe. And then I would go over here and then I'd be like, I need structure. So I've been ping-ponging between these two sides my whole life. And I think the session that my therapist did, which is basically to have these two sides sit down and have a really good conversation and to come to a point of, cooperation was like revolutionary and because the producer is very important like that planning that strategy that sense of knowing how to get things done is really important otherwise this side will uh literally will do nothing quite happily do nothing and um together there is something very powerful that can happen allowing the emergent side to kind of lead the process and the idea and then use this side to create the structure so sorry Nicola you do sort of need (laughs) a little bit of planning at times you know um yeah I think that's the that's the that's the bit I'm beginning to understand Uh, when I think of the word creativity or even just create um I understand it more and more as a balance between those two things. There's the inspiration and there's the action. And also, if it's going to be something of significance, there's coherent action. And that's where I start thinking about structure and planning. Because if you're on your own, miming, on you know, just jazz hands, that's yeah. fine. You can go with the flow. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do that with other people, Yes. You're going to have to try and have some coordination and some coherence and some direction where you're actually complementing each other's um, energies. There is a degree of either you are solely in, so in sync because you've worked together for so long that you just you can freestyle, or you have to have some kind of way of coordinating and, and moving in the same direction. And so I identify very much with your story there Gaylene in terms of like I take pride in being able to think clearly think strategically see structure Mm -hmm. but also being more aware and in touch and um, actually listening more to that other side which is you know feeling into what's next and uh, allowing that to be okay yes yes it's interesting. I went to um, an amazing event yesterday welcoming Kanashile, who's a South African, uh, who's a new um, curator for the Liverpool um, Biennial, but also happens to be an artist under Sangoma. So she's South African and she's a South African spiritualist, effectively. And she spoke to that yesterday where she opened in Hosa. She welcomed her ancestors in. This is a very kind of officious, you know, kind of event and then spoke about the fact that 
when she took the role, she said to everyone, they have to, they have to embrace all of her, not just this one side, not just the curator. She is also a mother. She's also a sangoma. She's also doing these things. And I think that that is the, I mean, I have a political version of why we don't do this which is, you know, to do with that moment of the enlightenment and splitting off and the way in which European uh, powers use that as a way to control us individuals and also the world. And so this idea of splitting people off from their feeling sides becomes very useful. It's a great way to control people. You can tell people what to do. You can shame them if they're not doing what they're supposed to do and they will do it. But teaching people that actually the most important thing is whatever you're told is to really pay attention to how that lands and then shift from that place is, you know, is, is radical. It's radical. It means that the, the political structures that we're in couldn't exist in the same way. It makes me think a lot around the different ways or make it simple, east-west split of the way we view the world. And the stories that we tell ourselves about how the world works and how that influences how we act and, and what we do. I think it's um, Charles Eisenstein had this whole idea of symptoms, systems and stories. Mm-hmm. And so the effects that happen, that we experience in the world, whether it's that inequality or te- you know social tension, they're built on a system, or whether it's that system of capitalism or... Uh, a system of uh, geography and how we separate ourselves in terms of nationality and how that's then built on stories Mm. and what these stories may be. And Mm. so when you're talking about this age of enlightenment where we are separate from our bodies, our brains and our bodies are different things and us as people are here to control the world as Mm. opposed to be integrated, that then that story then has its implications that run off to different things that happened that might not be helpful mm. and so i'm curious because the, you know the whole thing of certainty the need for a stable system of value exchange which is the money system that we have or the the communities we live in or even just this whole definition of uh success is uh 2.4 children a house a partner you know a pension plan that's based on a set of stories of what a successful life is. So I'd be curious to hear what stories influenced your life decisions and how they've shifted or changed or evolved or stayed the same. Brilliant question. And and I think, I, I, you know, I, lo- I didn't know that system that you've just laid out and I'm like a, a 100% co-sign. You know, I think there's the, the power of the narrative, I guess this is why culture interests me, right? Like this is where the, culture is where those uber narratives are. Uh, that's the engine of promoting them, you know? Um, and so analyzing those narratives and, and picking them has been part of, is probably why I've been interested in doing that. And I've been really influenced by all of them. I've been influenced by all of the major narratives, you know? I, I I think, and I've, as a consequence, I've battled with myself most of my life. So, you know, I told you where I grew up. The narrative was that you're supposed to leave school at 16, go work at the, the overlocking factory and live down, get a council house three doors down from your mum. I was like, I ain't never going to do that. But then I, I couldn't tell anyone that. You know, I would just pretend and, and then... But really, I had another whole other thing going. So I've always had these secret sides because I felt shame that I didn't feel, I didn't co-sign with that narrative. I think it's quite interesting that the age that I am, I've never been married. And I actually think because if I'm really honest, the idea of being a wife was like the traditional, you know, story about being a wife. And of course, that's the traditional. Always felt like a horror to me. I'm not gonna stay inside for until all that clean and cook. What? You know, so there's all these things now that I can be a bit more honest about and go, actually, that story never grabbed me enough for me to want to go explore it. And then I think about the stories that I was drawn towards, you know, 
the iconoclasts, the people who did, uh, I think, give me, one of my favourite books is the portrait, is James Joyce's portrait of an artist as a young man. And because the story is of this character who's born in Ireland, you know, a strict religion, bucking all of it, to get to a place to say, if it means I walk this planet alone, I will walk it alone. But I cannot co-sign to these things. And it takes such courage to go against a dominant narrative. It really does. It's really, really hard. But I think what's helped me is being also a black girl. Growing up as a black girl in a white working class estate because those narratives excluded me anyway. So I didn't have a choice to join them. And there's a lot of people like me. I think there's a lot of people of colour who have walked their own path, not because they're really brave or courageous, but because they didn't really have a choice to join that other one. So, you know, you get used very young to walking your own path. So the things that may scare other people, other adults, I think we have, um, we, we've dealt with that fear when we were eight, nine years old, because we were forced to. So, you know, it's not out of, it's not come from a space of courage. It's come from a, a space of necessity, I Conditioning. Guess. Conditioning. But you do see those narratives. I think from young, I saw them. I was like, oh, that's the story you're telling yourself. Okay, that's interesting. I can't join that story. So what story am I going to create? I love that framing. Uh, it resonates a lot for me, uh, to be honest. You kind of, creating your own narratives is just second nature because the narratives that were presented to you just didn't fit and so rather than feeling like oh this is how i should be it's like actually i have to make it up because <laughs> there is there's nothing there there's nothing that i can strongly identify with and the, the story for me is very much coming to the uk when i was three really kind of surrounded by a whole t- different culture, not fully identifying with it, but trying to get on with it. But for some reason, I, yeah, I, I understand that's funny and I like this and I like that, but not quite clicking. Um, then having to just, all right, what is my path? Because it isn't quite that path and it isn't quite that path. So I kind of have to make it up as I go along. And then there's the stories that parents give you about what's a successful person, you know, go down the finance career or my mum said you should be an engineer or be a doctor <laughs> it's like no i could have followed that but it just didn't feel feel right i couldn't have articulated it in the same way now i said like, oh i didn't feel i just like i know it was more like a belligerent no i'm not going to do what you're telling me but that even i found isn't particularly helpful either not coming from a place of unawareness yes she's being stubborn no i'm not going to do it because you're telling me to do it yes mm. Oh, yes. Yes. And I think I think part of my unlearning is my lack of trust. You know, I grew up, I think, not quite trusting the things that people were telling me, which mm. sometimes you can trust them. Sometimes it's fine. Do you know what I mean? So there's something about me having to understand that some things are okay to go along with, some things are fine, you know. So, yeah, I, 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 feel, I, I feel that background. Carlos, for sure, and and I think it it does wire you in a particular way, and I think in terms of the spaces that we're in now, the space that you've created, which makes kind of sense why you create it, it's brilliant, right? Like the like you're saying, there's lots of us in this space, but I think there are other spaces where it's we probably gather for a reason. Do you know mm. what I mean? And I also mm-hmm. think, you know, irrespective of our cultural backgrounds, I would say this experience <laughs> is fundamentally human. You know, going back to the I am a Gailey and I am a Carlos, I am a Lawrence. We are a unique, individual, weird mix of very specific things. And taking the time to understand our specificity Mm. has got to be the starting place, I think. It reminds me actually of a post I saw this morning about a friend uh, from this other community, like Hearted Leaders, Cyrus Johnson. He was talking about his son doing GCSEs and how he found it a massive struggle and actually his teachers persisted with him and he, you know, finally got through it and he sent a letter, a couple of letters of thanks to the teachers who really kind of like persisted. But I share that story because school for me is, is one of those examples where we're all supposed to be the same or follow the same 
path where some can't or won't or feel unseen or unsupported by those systems and that that then essentially being replicated in the world of work and then also spreading out into society is like the need for unity or homogeneity as opposed to valuing our differences but also through our differences we find our similarities which comes down to i think what you're doing in your work is this the human deeper human bits of our connection as opposed to this superficial whether how we look or what we do or how clever we are or what our proclivities are but fundamentally deep down there's there's something that we're all connected to or with you know if i could live six lifetimes (laughs) simultaneously one of them would be reforming education for sure because this is where Mm. it begins this is where the shame begins i had a friend's kid who went to very good school he's eight or nine love this kid and he would kept getting told off because he kept doing handstands in the middle of the maths class it's like he's eight of course you want to do a handstand you don't want to sit and do maths like it's insane (laughs) for me so for sure there's a that's where it begins i think and i think yeah, I think this thing around specificity, it took me, when you said that, I was thinking of one of the how do you feel experiences that we did. And, and you would, what I loved about these is it's very self-selecting. The people who come often are the people who need that space. And, and it's surprising what they look like. You would never think this group of people had anything in common. Age, ages, you know, diversity in all kinds of senses. And then when you ask them these very specific questions about how this made them feel or the stories, the very specific stories that they brought out is the thing that had us all, we all started as strangers and there's a photo of us all like huddled together like around the campfire because what we want is specificity. We want to hear that uniqueness. We, we don't want the big grand narrative. We want someone to say, I, as somebody did, when I saw that I had this image of me being six and running my hands under the cold tap and the hot tap and I can't remember that that memory's just come. But you know, these very things were like, you know we want to hear someone's soul right we want to that's why we watch films and watch art and do those things we want to hear the someone's deep truth or something so that is a thing that binds us i think and i think that's uh i feel is part of the the work that connects us is the to hear those stories for someone to feel comfortable to share what might seem just a random story or they might not might seem important to them but might be inconsequential to others and so they don't share it to feel that they're in a place that people want to hear those stories and i was having a conversation earlier today with someone around you don't necessarily feel comfortable to share those stories with people unless you know that they're the person you're telling is is aware enough about their own stories there you go so when when we're able to connect with ourselves more we are then able to connect with others more deeply, is, is how I'm understanding this. And so this interface between art and the audience, in this case, what I'm hearing is like creating these spaces where we can feel into ourselves more so that then we can feel into others. Is that yes. fair enough? You know, that is also a straight space to come strapline is we create spaces that allow you to connect to yourself, to others, then to the world. And to me, it has to be in that order. I think the reason why no revolution has never succeeded and we keep going around this ridiculous thing is because the first two bits have been missed. So we rail against the world. You know, we go out and we, we, act, we act against the world and the injustice of the world without doing that first bit, which is how do we shift or have a more honest, compassionate relationship with ourselves, which then means we can have a more honest, compassionate relationship with others, and then the rest will take care of itself. Mm. But that bit has to happen first. You know, you have to do that internal bit first. And I think all of our, or what our experiences do is create space for, for all three, but definitely the first two. So you will have a, you will have space to have a more intimate conversation with yourselves. And then we'll create a really compassionate sharing space so people can then have a conversation with each other and it's all done through play and imagination so it's not like group therapy you know what i mean like mm. it's fun mm-hmm. there's two things maybe i wanted to end on firstly 
it feels like this work is of its time now because of the complexity of the challenges we're facing one person just railing against some of these big problems that we're facing won't help we need to somehow work together on this and so mm -hmm. I, that's why i relate self-connection so we can connect to others so we can work together as opposed to against mm -hmm. but then that work is some people find it threatening this self-connection work mm -hmm. and so i wanted to just maybe just end on that this whole approach that i feel that you're taking this kind of a more gentle invitational way of doing mm -hmm. things invitational way to basically play with your demons yeah, <laughs> yeah. the most the more attractive i think that we use the word invitation a lot and i think that's basically it is it you don't have to do it first of all it's not mandatory it's okay it's fine um but if you do do it it we can guarantee this is going to be lovely you know what i mean it's just going to love be lovely we, we, we're doing this project called re-up which is all about um looking at in, Anyway, go on the website and find more, out more about it. But and there's a nice little film, but it's all about, I do, do quite a lot with cultural leadership and thinking about how that if we, rather than think about strategies as productivity, we're thinking about restorative strategies and, get, and take, take for granted you can do the job. You can do the job. But how do you sustain yourself while you do it? So we're looking at mind, body care, creative intuition, doing kind of day sessions. Um, but the first kickoff event we wanted to do is like a late, you know, like a take late. So we took over the Welcome Collection Lounge and we just had all these different restorative pop-up games, experiences from we had these great mas masseurs, we had some embodiment practitioners, we had a psychotherapist doing a reasoning conversation, we had a flower arranging, we had a DJ, we had great food, we had lots of, um, what do you call it, uh, sacred knotting, just all fun things. But the whole point was, Really, it's just a chance to have a conversation in a different way, either with yourself or somebody else. But it's fun. It was a, it was a vibe. It was a Friday night. It was a vibe. And every, you know, most people left going, I'm ready for the weekend. And sure, they may have had some awarenesses and insights, but the, the main point was, don't have a nice weekend. Not to me. So I think that it's always about the gift. It's always about how can we offer something that is a gift, even if you don't want to do all the other stuff, you feel like you've been gifted something. And we should, we deserve it. We deserve it. We deserve nice things. Which means so yeah, that's that's the approach we take. I love that. A nice way to end. We we deserve nice things. Uh the the vibe that you described uh about Reup feels very similar to the vibe that we're trying to describe at summer camp. Um, I can't wait. And this whole feeling, you know, you don't have to have an existential crisis when you're at summer camp, but it can help. Um, <laughs> if you do, it's a nice place to have it, right? <laughs> nice place to have it nice on a hay bale in a field. <laughs> but yeah, but ultimately it is uh, leaving the weekend feeling like, oh, I can't wait for life. Yeah. And just, and having that feeling of like, oh, this is, this is nice. I, I, I gave myself a nice thing. nice thing. And then I think that gives us permission to give other people nice things. Um, so uh, I I feel very energized by oh, spending good. time with you again. It is really good. lovely. Good. I'm really glad. Um, Me too. Me too. Like I say, it's every time I find someone who's open, who's exploring these same questions, I'm so excited. So I'm really happy that I've found you guys and I'm so excited to come to summer camp. Now we've shared your website uh, and a few things. Is there anything that's coming up for you right now that you'd like people to point to? Or is there any way if people want to get in touch with you, yes. what's the best way? The best way is, well, my, I'll put my email address in. It's Gaylene at the space to come. We can also join. I feel very ashamed talking to you guys because you're, ex-web guys and you're really good at business no, I'm not. um but you do join the mailing list and every now and again 
<laughs> you'll get <laughs> some communication from us on a newsletter. That's why you need a plan. You need a, uh, so I need marketing, a, strategy. I need a marketing strategy. Mar- like I need a marketing, uh, a comms or marketing person. There you go. If anyone is out there who's really good at comms and marketing and wants to help, that's what we're missing at the moment. Uh, um, I wonder. There's someone out there I know <laughs> who's got aching to talk to you and probably help you as well. Okay, um, amazing. That's funny. Me and Carlos were talking about this the other day after your conversation that. I think we both landed on the website and just got it instantly and like all the different things that you're doing just sort of spoke to us and I think probably like us for some of our things other people don't always get it so it's nice to see those experiences and really connect with them and yeah I'd love to experience more of them myself yeah. rather than just hearing about them on the outside. Like I say I think the the thing that I'm always seeking I think probably because I was a lonely kid and all these I had all these ideas but the environment externally didn't seem fertile that 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 it's always moving to me when i meet people like yourselves who are just exploring this these questions in your own way that allow me to feel less alone so i guess i'm taking away feeling less alone so thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the happy entrepreneur podcast To hear more inspiring conversations like this, follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for The Happy Entrepreneur. In March, we'll be launching Tribe 7 of our Vision 2020 program. If you're at a point in your career or entrepreneurial journey where you're asking yourself, what next? And you need the clarity and confidence to make some bold decisions about a new direction, then this program is for you will help you define what success really means to you, understand the impact that is yours to make, make sure your mission is both energetically and financially sustainable, and also learn how to build a supportive community around yourself. We want people who are driven to do good in the world and are tired of trying to do it on their own. We'll share the key lessons we've learned while building the Happy Startup School and pivoting from the stressful peaks and troughs of agency life to a life of freedom, adventure, service and connection. We value learning, play and friendship and we'd like to help you discover the values and the work that align more to who you are. Don't struggle alone and don't get sidetracked by other people's measures of success. Discover for yourself what it means to create effortless impact. To apply for the next tribe, go to vision.happystartups.com. We look forward to hearing from you.